Yeah. Okay. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Hot enough for you? Warm. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 10, 14. Thank you to the Lapeer County EMS for providing our new defibrillator. Is that installed, installed, Phil, or on the way? Okay. Training. Okay. Um, Dr. Ed's address there again. Um, place your offering uh, again in the offering box. Andrea's te- uh, contact number. Days of Praise booklets are here for the next quarter. And uh, I have a letter from the Pregnancy Center of Lapeer. We sincerely thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your generous donation and prayers. Less than a month ago, we had almost a $30,000 deficit in our budget. Because of your support and the support of others like you, we have received close to 75% of what we lacked in just a matter of weeks. God is good. If you haven't already done so, please visit our supporter website and sign up for the monthly email. This will keep you up to date on the great things that are happening in our ministry, including upcoming events and workshops. And I'll post this so that you can get that website. And that is from Erica Hale. Good news. If I missed anything, I'm fogging up my windows. Scripture reading this morning is a responsive reading. And that's Psalm 145, that's page 838 in Trinity. Let's stand together and we'll read the scriptures. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints 
will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who call and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, and all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we meet. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we do uh, ask you this morning uh, that you would uh, be present among us, that you would uh, open our hearts. Lord, there's much to be distracted by, and we would ask that through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, that we would be able to focus. Thank you for our pastor. Thank you for the message that he is uh, going to bring that you've laid on his heart. We know that uh, you direct these things, and there's, uh, there's a lesson that you'd have us learn this morning, and we ask that we would be open to it. I think of those who are away from us uh, today for whatever their reasons, that you would bless them, bless others around the country that are meeting in your name. Ask that you would be with our country, that you would bring uh, us together as a nation uh, following you. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless us and meet with us as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 382, 382 in the brown. Oh, Lord of my heart. 
Thank you. You may be seated. Do we have a favorite hymn this morning? Anyone? I see Dale's hymnal is open, but so is Sheila's. Are, are you going to raise your hand? Or someone else? Anyone? All right. Naomi, you're the brave one. She's the only one raising her hand. Yes, ma'am. Number four in the brown. And why number four in the brown? All right, it's a wonderful hymn. Great words. Thank you. 
scripture reading this morning is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. That's 1,500 in the Pew Bible. Take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 588, 588 in the brown.
need to come a little closer, Jerry. Good. Thank you. Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 4. Today we begin a new series on worship, which I am entitling uh, Worship in the Heartland, not at all uh, meaning just the idea of the Midwest of our country, but rather the challenge for us to worship God in heart, soul, and mind, excuse mind, spirit, in every spirit, which is a singular proof of the loving God, Matthew 12, verse 30. In that text, Jesus lists as the first and foremost command is to love him with all of heart, soul, and mind. And then the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Today, we're going to look at who should we worship? Who should we worship? And that kind of giving it away in the title, Worship God Alone, which for us is a given. But you know, for many, for many, the God being worshipped is not the God of the Bible. And hence, an idol. Or they are in love with themselves and therefore direct their lives solely by what they perceive will make themselves feel good or prosper or be happy and so on. That's a form of self-worship. And self-worship is idolatry, every bit the definition. As an aborigine bowing down to his little idol of stone or piece of wood or whatever. So in the weeks to come, we're going to look at how the how of worship, in other words, methodology. When to worship, where to worship, defects or misdirected worship the importance of worship, and so on, which a lot of Christians just don't get it, how important it is to be worshiping God. Now, this will be extensive, but at the same time, hopefully a practical guide of, on this very important theme. I have a friend, uh, Robert Morey, Dr. Robert Morey, who wrote a book entitled Life is All of Worship. Uh, our worship, rather, is all of life. <clears throat> In other words, you, it's something we do every day, tomorrow, Monday, as well as the whole rest of the week, not just Sunday, not just Wednesday night. The text before us today, Matthew 4, portrays Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by none other than the great tempter himself, Satan. And we will discover that the devil's ambition, get it now, the devil's ambition in life is to usurp the worship of God alone and thus cause mankind to be damned forever in breach of the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. Oh, by the way, the second verse, Exodus 20, 
forbids idols of any kind. But what do we have in the religions of the world? We have worship of self and worship of idols. And God, the God of Scripture, the only God there is, is forgotten. So as we come today, we want to talk about worshiping God alone. Worshiping God alone. No other gods but the God who has revealed himself. As we come, let's ask for the Lord to bless us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will bless us with your presence, with your unction of the Spirit, that we might understand the Scriptures and put them to good use in our hearts. We don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of your word. Well, lots of times when people hear the word, they run away from it or they turn it off. Or they go to something else. They believe that the scriptures are not relevant for their own day and living. But we know otherwise. By your spirit we know that your word is truth, the scripture says. You have proclaimed that. Your word is the truth. And that anyone that loves truth is going to come to Christ. Because he seeks for truth. They'll find it in Jesus, but they won't find it anywhere else. Bless then the truth of your word to our hearts. We need to be challenged. We need to be saved. We need to be built up in our faith. And for this we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we begin this series on worship. The first thing we want to talk about today is that we are to worship God alone. Let's begin with defining our terms. What does it mean when we say worship God? What is worship? Ever think about that? You're sitting here in the sanctuary this morning in what we call the worship service. But does that mean that there's no worship of God if we meet, let's say, in Fellowship Hall? If we come together on a Wednesday night for prayer? No worship there. We call certain kinds of music worship hymns. Does that mean that there are hymns we sing which are not to be considered worship? We should think about all these things. The word worship, whether found in Hebrew in one of the Old Testament books, take your, take your choice, or in, a, in the Greek words found in the New Testament book of the Bible, they both mean the same thing. Whether you're talking about Hebrew or Greek, Hebrew, the writing of the Old Testament, Greek, in the writing of the New Testament. The Hebrew word for worship first appears in Genesis when Abram was told to sacrifice Isaac unto God on a specific mountain, Mount Moriah, which became later the place where Jerusalem was built. And he told his servants, he gave them this instruction, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then come back to you. Genesis 22 verse 5. First use of the word worship in the Old Testament. 
The Hebrew word means to bow down. To bow down. To prostrate oneself before a superior. To stoop or fall down in homage to another. In this case, of course, to bow down to God. To do as God had instructed. And by the way, it's not just a physical posture thing. But the idea of bowing down the heart and the mind in obedience to the one that's being honored. In the film, Anna and the King, Anna, who's played by Jodie Foster, got herself in trouble with the officials of Siam because she did not follow the protocol of bowing low before the king in his presence. Instead, she stood to a stood tall and the king excused her indiscretion as a newcomer to Siam but worked it out saying that as long as her head did not rise above his at any given point she could stand. In this film of course the bowing low was not considered worship but carried the idea of respect the idea of honor to the leader, in this case the king, of the country. When, however, this subject is God himself, the creator of every man, woman, and child, respect and honor goes without saying, but now the added dimension of worship is added, which is noted as bowing down is as an inferior to the one who is the supreme superior. Think about it. There are earthly kings, there are earthly monarchs, and then there is the one who is titled King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hmm. If we, as mere creatures, hold our heads high in the presence of God, it's an effrontery to his majesty and deity which is punishable by death. Some have the notion that such was in Old Testament days that when God was viewed there as austere, yeah, remote, distant, disinterested in his creation. But in our day, they say, things have mellowed, they've, they've softened, so that God is no longer seen as separate from his creation. So people take a more relaxed view of God, even declaring uh, to address him as God, we have today people irreverently referring to God as the man upstairs, the big daddy in the sky. I've heard that one. Or other equally irreverent epithets. And the expression familiarity breeds contempt becomes very rare because if God can be addressed in these irreverent terms, then we may also approach him in profane ways without any fear. I mean, think about it. We just make God a buddy. <laughs> He's one with us. But none of this is so. None of this is so, according to the scriptures. The New Testament word for worship is found for the first time in Matthew 2, verse 2, 
wherein the Magi of the East inquired of Herod and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the East and have come to worship him. The word in Greek is prosthuneo, from which we get prostrate, to bow down. Among the Orientals, especially the Persians, to fall upon the knees, to touch the ground with the forehead. You've seen that, I'm sure. As an expression of profound reverence. In the New Testament, it means kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. In other words, from the biblical standpoint, we just do not go bebopping into the presence of God and treat him like one of the boys. We just don't do that. And those that do do that don't have a knowledge of the holiness of God. The whole concept is one of subservience, approaching God in a way that you recognize that God is not your equal. No, he is above you, and I don't mean spatially in the heavens, no. But he is above us in every way. He is superior in every way. The psalmist put it this way. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, Psalm 100, verse 3 and 4. That's how you're to approach God. That's how we are to approach God. And tantamount to this is that any form, think about this now, any form of arrogance, self-assertiveness, disobedience to God shows not only disrespect to him, but irreverence and effrontery that God does not take lightly. You just don't go bebopping into the presence of God as though he were a buddy. When Israel, God's own chosen people, whom he rescued from the oppression of Egyptian bondage, followed Moses through the Red Sea en route to the Promised Land, it wasn't long before they began to dig in their heels and protest to God that everything from the manna that he provided them to eat to the lack of meat and water, the length of the journey, the lack of physical signs of his presence, etc., etc. It wasn't very long when they planned at one point to attempt a coup. Remember this? They were going to kill Moses and return to Egypt. Can you believe this? Boy, short memory did they have what Egypt was like. And for that reason, God said to them, 
Not one of the men, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and did the desert and who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Numbers 14, verse 22 and 23. Do you get the idea? I do. That God does not take this kind of thumb in your nose at God and treating him like just somebody, some doodad guy that you play ball with on the weekend. He doesn't take that lightly. The basic problem for Israel is the same with people in our day. Moses put it this way, Jeshurun, which is the old name for Jerusalem. You can hear it in the Hebrew there. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. And filled with food, he became heavy and sleek, and he abandoned the God who made him, and he rejected the rock, his Savior. And they made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons. Can you believe this? He's talking about Israel. They sacrificed to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known. You deserted the rock you who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and he rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said. And see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. You'll find those words in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15 and following. The patent phrase that God used of Israel, his own people now, I remind you. Here was the patent phrase. You are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. It's a Hebraism. We wouldn't talk that way today. Stiff-necked. You know, in worship, we're to bow down, right? Bow the head. That's what the word worship means. But he's saying of Israel, you don't bow down. You sit there like your kings and queens, princes and princess. And that stiff-necked attitude shows the rebellion of your heart. In Exodus 32, 9, God said, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Again, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Isn't that something? God says, I'm going to have to restrain myself. I'm not even going to go with you. Because I might not let you make it to the promised land. I might destroy you on the way. 
Again we read, For the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. Exodus 33, verse 5. This is God speaking to Israel. Wow. Or in chapter 34, O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sins and take us as your inheritance, pleads Moses, Exodus 34, verse 9. What an intercessor Moses was. Think about that. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6 says, Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. In verse 13, he says, And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people, and they are. A stiff-necked people, indeed. Wow. One more. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. You see, the problem, brethren, is a heart issue. This whole reference to being stiff-necked or stubborn. It's in the heart. It's in their mind. It's in their thinking. It's in their actions. They prefer ruling their own lives, even though the decisions they make are always sinful and wicked. But they want it that way. Now compare all this with what Paul wrote to the Gentiles of Rome. All right, we got the Jewish people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We come into the New Testament, we're dealing with the church, the Gentiles of Rome. But it's not any better. Here's what Paul says to those in Rome. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, there it is, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. What is this? Same problem, isn't it? Same obstinance. What is it about human nature that makes stubbornness almost an art form that everyone adores and refuses to relinquish? The scripture says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Oh, there's the clue. Get it again? Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. That was said to King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. You know, there's a lot of self-worship in stubborn people. In this case, Saul, but he's not alone. They follow the temperament of the king of stubborn. 
Who's the king of stubborn? It's the devil himself. Remember Jesus and the tempter? Our text, Matthew 4, states Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The word spirit is capitalized in our translation indicating the Holy Spirit. So I have to ask, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to an arid place for the specific purpose to be tempted by the devil? Didn't Jesus teach his disciples and us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Matthew 6, verse 12 and 13. Yet here, Jesus is being motivated to enter a time of seclusion, which has the specific purpose of tempting him to sin, and of all things, by the prince of temptation himself, the devil. And as if that were not bad enough, the temptation comes at the end, verse 2 says, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. With the result, he was, Matthew writes, hungry. (laughs) Boy, what an understatement. Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? I get hungry if I miss one meal. (laughs) The point being that Satan's first temptation, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones, what? To become bread. And by the way, Satan is not casting doubt on Jesus' identity. When he uses if... He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. The if statement, if you are the Son of God, is what we call in Greek a third-class condition, which doesn't mean much to you, and, but it means this. Whenever a third-class condition is used, it's, it affirms what is being said. It's not casting doubt. It's best understood with the word since. Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, you wouldn't know that from the English translation, but it's in the Greek. So Satan is not denying Jesus' deity. He is rather affirming it. This makes him even more wicked. No mere mortal can change stones into bread, right? Or as actually occurred in Cana, with Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. But God can do both. Water into wine, stones into bread. No problem. So here we learn some important lessons about the devil's temptations. And we need to take this to heart. Number one, temptations to sin always agree with one's capabilities. It's rather sinister when you think about this. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve to partake of the one tree in the Garden of Eden, 
that God had placed a don't eat sign on. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know the story. It was not something beyond their capabilities. That is, to go against the roll and eat. The tree was not surrounded by an electric fence to zap any trespassers. Nor was it guarded by ferocious beasts endangering both life and limb. Nor was it positioned geographically on some high snow-capped mountain. No, none of this. The tree was in the middle of the garden, we are told, Genesis 2 verse 9, thus readily available from the same distance of anywhere they might be in Eden. Start west, go east. Start east, go west. Start north, go south. It doesn't matter. It's in the middle of the garden. You'll get there if you just start out. That's the very nature of temptation. Satan does not come to you with a proposal that is beyond your capabilities. John tells us from where the attack will come. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world, that is, that's the devil's playground, verse 8. Remember the third temptation? Jesus was showed all the kingdoms of the world by Satan and their splendor. Three things the world offers. 1 John 2, verse 16. The desires of the flesh. Secondly, the desires of the eyes, what you see. Thirdly, the pride of possessions. What would be Jesus' great desire after 40 days of fasting. Think about it. The devil assumed, oh, 40 days of no eating? Ah, I got it. Food. Aren't you hungry, Jesus? Don't answer. I know you are. But Jesus is out in the desert. No Kroger store. No 7-Eleven on the the corner market. No problem. Satan's temptations are first characterizing that they always agree with one's capabilities. For lesser men, Satan would not. For lesser men, Satan would not have said... Make these stones into bread. You could say that to me all day long. (laughs) There wouldn't be no temptation in that. But to Jesus, he can say, and he does say, since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do you see the difference? He had the capacity to do the very thing Satan was suggesting. Absolutely no impossibility for him who would later command the threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Be quiet! Be still! And then the winds died down and it was completely calm. 
Mark 4, verse 39. Satan's temptations always complement our capabilities and desires. And don't forget it. I'm not going to ask, tempt you to do something beyond your capabilities. When I was a kid living with our family, our family was living with Grandma and Grandpa. My grandpa loved to eat Limburger cheese sandwiches for lunch. In case you don't know, Limburger cheese is a particularly offensive smelling cheese imported from the old world. Described ably by one internet site, let me quote it for you. Limburger cheese undoubtedly is one of the stinkiest cheeses in the world. Limburger actually smells worse than it tastes. For many people, though, the aroma is both the beginning and the end of their acquaintance with Limburger cheese. It is a food people either love or they love to hate. My grandpa used to try to tease me all the time. Just try it, Fred. Just, just take a little taste. Here, I'll put a little bit on a cracker. Just try it. No, I not even. <laughs> I could not be enticed to even try a bit of Limburger cheese. The smell turned me off. Ah. But set a dish full of Hershey's chocolate kisses on the table. Ooh, now. That was a real temptation, even when Mom said no candy before supper. You see where I'm getting at? What are, your, what are you capable of wanting? What are you capable of doing? This is where the test will come. You're likely not going to be tempted of the devil to go down to the center of Lapeer and rob the bank. You might even own a hunting gun or a rifle or something, but you're not going to be tempted to do that. But you might be tempted to steal a piece of clothing from Walmart. See where I'm getting? The temptations come in the area of our capabilities, our proclivities. That's the first tra uh, trait we need to know. Second characteristic of Satan's temptations taught in our text is that Satan always tempts us when we are at our weakest. The devil came to Jesus at the end of a 40-day fast. You know what a fast is? You're not eating for 40 days. Some of you suffer from what the doctors call low blood sugar. I know Brother George suffers from that. My wife suffered from that. People with this problem who haven't eaten for some time will start getting the shakes. I saw it in Donna many times. And they sometimes become disoriented. They definitely have to sit down. They definitely have to eat some food to restore energy. And when you are weak like this, your legs feel like rubber and you sense that you're going to faint. 
even if a cube of Limburger cheese would sound so good to you, it won't sound good. But people will choose the lesser of two evils. Am I going to faint away on the floor? Boom. Or am I going to eat some of this cheese that I don't like? You see, people are like that when they have this ailment. That was the way with Donna. We had to get her food on time. She, George knows about this, right, brother? You have to eat on time. Say, so what's on time? Well, whatever your schedule is, whatever your body is used to, breakfast, lunch, dinner. You don't miss your meals. What's the biblical remedy when Satan attacks us? James put it this way, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can't be wishy-washy. You can't be double-minded. Jesus' weakness at this point of the temptation was very physical. He was hungry likely weak from lack of food, but he resisted the devil's temptation by appealing to the word of God. Verse 4. It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, this is Jesus speaking, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Devil, don't you know that life consists in a realm that is more than physical? There is the spiritual side of life. So if knuckling under to your temptations to hunger, by submission to his suggestion to use God power to satisfy personal use, needs. I'll make bread. I have the power to do that. He's not going to do that. Because it would support the notion that living only involves physical nutrition for the body, and that's not the truth. Jesus could not, he would not comply. Well, he opted for the spiritual rather than the physical. You guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau, as the older brother, was <clears throat> entitled to the birthright from Father Isaac, making him the family's spiritual head and leader of the tribe. But Esau did not see such value in the birthright. But Jacob, his brother, his younger brother, prized, prized the birthright greatly. One day, Esau returned from the hunt. I mean, he's a man's type of man. You know, the bows, the arrows, the knives. He's the kind that would take on a grizzly bear with a switch in the woods in the middle of the night says Ray Charles in his song. Man's man. We read once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished, and he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm, I'm, I'm famished. Get the picture here. Jacob stirring a pot of stew, 
Esau comes in from the hunt, but he doesn't have any game. He didn't get anything that day. Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, first, hmm, first, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. Jacob said to him, swear to me first. When you swore in these days, biblical days, you were asking God to take note of what you were promising and consequences if you broke your promise. So Jacob takes it into this spiritual realm. Swear to me. So the scripture says he swore on oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau his home bread and some lentil soup. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so, here's God's evaluation. And so Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, verse 29 and following. Contrast that. Tells us that Jacob, Jacob was a stay-at-home kind of guy. Which means Esau was back at the family compound where Jacob was cooking his stew, whatever that was. Famished? Really? He couldn't last another 10 or 15 minutes to make himself a, a lunch? Esau had no inclination towards spiritual things. No inclination towards spiritual things. God's evaluation of him is found in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, verse 16, which says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. End quote. What God is saying here is that Esau did not place any value on living his life by the word of God, on accepting the responsibility of spiritual head of the family, the spiritual head of the family, which was the birthright. What mattered most to him was his stomach and eating his fill. And God labeled him as godless and warns us not not to be like him. Instead of resisting Satan, he caved in after a night or two of forest hunting for game. Let me tell you something. Jesus was much weaker, much weaker after 40 days of not eating. Yet maintaining his spiritual integrity was more important than feeding his face. Say, well, what's your point, Pastor? My point is this. When we are weak, when we are weak, that is when the temptations to sin will come. 
It is at those times when our spiritual integrity must mean more to us than gratifying the flesh. But often we fail at this very point, and I fail at this very point as well. That is why we need Jesus, of whom the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16. What the writer is saying, I know you're weak. Do you know you're weak? The tempter's after you. 